worship him, be before his word. My name is Paul Buckley, and I'm uh, the lead pastor here. And on behalf of the entire church, if you are a guest, welcome. We're glad you're with us. We pray God's blessing on you. We are enjoying much grace as a church, and uh, Pam's announcement and some things Sean mentioned, uh, our Vacation Bible School is a big highlight for us as a church. We're looking forward to that and the work the Lord is going to be doing. Also this past week, uh, we were able to sign our purchase and sale agreement for our building. So our... Our, our elders, our officers, and our uh, deacons on the respective teams unanimously agreed to sign that. And so we are moving forward and um, looking to secure financing and get final inspections done. Uh, we are uh, releasing some funds for some of our purchases. We won't be able to do all of them until we have financing, but we have received some gift money as a church for certain things. So we have uh, in a desire to prepare and serve Vacation Bible School, we have er ordered new chairs. So uh, we will have, we have a room full of chairs, which is nice, among many other things. So we are grateful for God's grace in our church. And we recognize that His grace comes from Him, and it flows through His Word. God is a God who creates through his word. He brings life through his word. He's a speaking God. He created the universe through his word. Jesus Christ is the word incarnate. And so as we come before him each Sunday, um, it is a privilege and a blessing to be before his word. So as we go through Philippians, it's not just about hearing what this literature teaches. It's actually hearing from God himself through his word, and experiencing the life that comes as a result. So it's a highlight of our worship together to be before his word, to learn from his word as well. I'm excited for this particular uh, section of chapter 4 this morning. And before we read it, uh, I want to pray, but I want to give you just a brief background. Paul has been uh, talking to his dear friends in Philippi, and he's seeking to serve them in their particular situation, which looks like it relates to some degree of disunity in the church, though it's a fairly mature and healthy church, there's some disunity going on. So in this letter, he's addressing this and, and bringing themes of uh, gospel truth to them. And now in these two verses, he actually notches it up a little bit and, and treats some people by name. And you'll hear those names mentioned. And then he does something interesting. He entreats them by name, but then he honors them before the whole church as well. And one other thing he does, he calls the whole church to assist them in settling their conflict. This particular section is very helpful and very instructive for us as we, as a church, seek to walk in the Lord and in the gospel and as we face inevitable conflict at times. So I believe God has riches for us this morning he wants to speak to us, and he wants to change us and shape us into the image of Christ, both corporately and individually. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask him just to do that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 
We thank you for the truth that's packed into this. We thank you for your sovereign hand over the situation in Philippi and Paul's response and the fact that this was written down and preserved for your people and for us today and for the particular people that are gathered here. Lord, in your great wisdom and sovereignty, you knew what would happen today. You knew where we are. You knew what we needed to hear And, Lord, you have things planned for us. So, Lord, give us hearts that are expectant to hear from you. Give us faith in you. And, Lord, grant power, Holy Spirit, through your presence, through the preaching of your word, through the hearing of your word, to encounter you, to learn and be changed, Lord. Lord, through all this, be glorified. And grant us great joy in these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul is writing to his friends, and he says in verse 2, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sintki to agree in the Lord. He ask, I, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. It was the right hook that got him. Pastor might have stood in front of the communion table, trading punches with the head deacon all morning had not his fist caught the pastor on the chin two minutes and 15 seconds into the fight. Pastor went down for the count at the altar where most members of the church had first declared their commitment to Christ. Within an instant, the majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching and shoving. The melee soon spilled over to an open space by the organ. Someone threw a hymnal. The missile sailed high and wide and splashed down in the baptistry behind the choir. When the deacon's right hook took the pastor down, someone grabbed the spring flower arrangement from the altar and threw it high in the air in that direction. Water sprinkled uh, in the first two rows on, uh, on the right side, and a visiting Presbyterian experienced full immersion when the vase shattered against the wall next to his seat. The fight ended when the police arrived on the scene carrying the pastor, four deacons, the piano player, and the hymnal thrower off to jail. A sad story, a true story. Though the details may be disputed as you might expect, this conflict took place in an actual church in the greater Boston area. Not my church, by the way, so. Just in case you're wondering whether I was the guy who went down for the count, but. <laughs> Neither was I the deacon. I, it was a long time ago, but it was a real church. And there is a sad reality of conflict in the church. Now, usually conflict doesn't escalate to a fist fight or a melee. But often, though there may not be fists thrown, punches thrown, and vases thrown, and hymnals thrown, The emotions and attitudes behind such a conflict often are there in churches. It's a sad reality. But in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? For what happens when you take 
hundreds of sinful people, put them in close proximity, and tell them they have to share. Have you done that with your children? You know the results. We shouldn't be surprised that there's conflict, and there will be conflict. Whether it escalates to that point in this story or, or something less, there's going to be conflict. But God's Word and the power of the Spirit of God is sufficient to instruct us and to guide us and to keep us and to lead us in a radically different approach to differences, whatever degree of contrast those differences might be. God's Word instructs us in another way. It teaches us. It guides us. And this wonderful section of Scripture, these two verses, are very helpful in teaching us not only about the attitude to avoid conflict, but the actual approach, the actual methods that we can use to avoid conflict, and to glorify God. So we're going to dig in here, and I would submit to you that there are three things that this passage teaches us. It teaches us, first, we resolve conflict by agreeing in the Lord. We resolve conflict by agreeing in the Lord. We resolve conflict by assisting those in conflict, and we resolve conflict by avoiding demonizing those who disagree. These three things, agreeing, Assisting and avoiding, and I believe that those are in your notes. They are the ways that we resolve conflict. Resolving conflict takes work, and we must work. We must work according to these principles and these truths to settle conflict in the church. So let's dig in. First, agree in the Lord. Paul starts out this section in verse 2. He says, I entreat Iodia and I treat Synthke to agree in the Lord. These are two women in the church. He addresses them. Now, he's been hitting on the themes of unity throughout this letter. He's been addressing the need for unity and how unity is achieved throughout this letter. He's talked a lot about it as we've gone through. We've learned about what he's saying. We've seen the truth of the gospel and how the gospel empowers us and leads us to live a life of love and humility. Paul has spoken a lot in this letter about joy and joy in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. And, and joy in the Lord is a powerful antidote to conflict. When we're finding our joy in the Lord, we are resistant to conflicting with others. He set before them the example of Christ who, who laid his life down to serve others in this supreme example of sacrifice and love for the good of others and that truth and that pattern goes against the core of conflict. He set before them Timothy and Epaphroditus in his own example of gospel-centered living and humble dependence on Christ and Christ's righteousness and finding his life and his joy in knowing Christ. He set this example before them that, that is a powerful, strong, transforming truth to promote unity and protect against conflict. He's done all this, but now in verse 2, he notches it up a bit in addressing these two women. He calls them out by name. And that's actually an unusual thing for Paul to do. He does not do that uh, for correction like this commonly. But we have watched him express his affection for this church. 
He's built bridges of affection, not only in the letter, but in his relationship with these Philippians. He knows them well. They know him well. They know his heart. He's built relational equity that he can spend in notching it up and addressing them. I'm not saying we should easily do things like this, but Paul has invested relationally with these guys. He knows, they know he loves them. And so he notches it up by addressing these two women, Yodia and Sintki. Sorry that the names are not simpler names, uh, but these are their names, and they mean things in their original language. These are two women in Philippi, two prominent women. This is a church, actually, that has a history of women leaders. If you know the story from the book of Acts, Paul comes to Philippi with his team, and, and he uh, reaches out to a woman named Lydia. She is a merchant, a prominent woman in the city, and a, a Jewish woman, from what I remember. And she comes to Christ, and she welcomes them into her home, and her home serves as a base for their work. There's a, the, the next convert that I remember is another woman. It's a slave girl. They reach out to this slave girl, as well. So women are figure predominantly in this story in Philippi. And Yodia and Sintki are apparently leaders in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, I think Scripture is pretty clear that, that women, although called to be leaders in the church, uh, are, are not to serve as pastors, that pastors, the role of pastors, according to God's call, not according to competence necessarily, but God's call, and we trust him in this. Women, uh, men are to serve as pastors, but women, nevertheless, are to be important leaders in the church and deacon-type roles and otherwise. And obviously, these women, Yodia and Sintki, are influential leaders in this church as women. And their influence is so significant that their conflict has had an equal influence on this church. We don't know the full details. We don't know how divided the church is. We don't know the particulars of the conflict. But their influence in the church has led to significant disunity. And so Paul wants to address this disunity. And he knows these women. He loves them. He respects them. They know him. Yet he values unity so greatly. He values it so greatly that he's willing to notch it up. And to entreat them. And it says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sinki. He entreats them individually. Each of them get the verb entreat before their name. He doesn't say, I entreat you guys. I entreat Iodia and Sinki. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sinki. He, he urgently asks them. He pleads with them. He counsels them. This is a strong word, entreat. It's just shy of a command. He's urging them. I entreat you, Yodia. I entreat you, Sinki. Agree in the Lord. Paul knows how important unity is. He's a man of the word. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That wonderful psalm goes on to talk about the blessing of consecration and fruitfulness that flows from unity. Unity is a great blessing for God's people. It's, it's something we're called to. It's based and grounded in the very nature of God himself. God is a, a 
unity. God is one. There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet they are one in essence, one together. Unity is at the very core of who God is. And unity is at the very core of the church. We as believers, when we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, his death, his life, his death, his resurrection, reign in return, when we trust in Christ, we are forgiven and we are made one with him. To be in the church is to be unified with Christ and therefore unified with one another. So disunity is an unacceptable alternative to these truths. It is improper and has no place in the church of God. And we also learn from Psalm 133 and elsewhere and certainly history that unity brings great blessing. Unity brings fruitfulness to the church in its witness to the world. The world looks and sees diverse people, different backgrounds, different preferences, different ethnicities, and social statuses, differences in all these different ways, coming together as one, truly loving one another, that's a miracle. And that puts on display the power of the gospel to the world. They will know, they will know us by our love. There's great fruitfulness in, in witnessing and evangelism. There's efficiency in ministry. We can work efficiently together quickly and get things done when there's unity amidst diversity, by the way. We are able to be fruitful and watch leaders raised up and church plants sent out and much fruit born in unity. But when there's disunity, the church flounders. The church fails in its witness. The church fails in its efficiency and fruitfulness. The church fails to honor God and love one another. Paul knows this. He knows these things. He knows how it's important, how important it is for the Philippians and how important for the glory of God and how important for the mission of the gospel. And so he entreats Iodia and Synthki by name because of the value of unity in his mind. And I believe the value of unity in God's mind and heart. How about you? Do you know? the value of unity? Do you feel the same level of urgency for this value? Would you need to be entreated by Paul if he knew you to agree in the Lord? Let us heed this call to value unity and respond. Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. It's translated differently elsewhere. It's literally this, think the same thing. Yodia and Sinki, I want you to think the same thing. And now he uses this sort of idea, this sort of term throughout this letter. I think we have a number of verses to show where Paul says the same thing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 verse 15, let those who, of us who are mature think this way. These are all the same word or same type of phrasing. Paul wants them to think the same. 
And we can, from these verses, understand what he means as he says here to Yodia and Sinchki to, to think the same thing in the Lord or to agree in the Lord. Now, he's not asking them to become clones of one another. He's not asking them to think the exact same thoughts all the time. That would be really freaky, wouldn't it? Just to, to be thinking the same thoughts and speaking the same. It makes me think of like a horror movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or something. Yodia and Sinki and the whole church talking the same as clones and, and robots, thinking the same, liking the same things. That's not what Paul's getting at. He doesn't mean that they are to think exactly the same thoughts and be just the, the same, that there be complete unison in all things. That would be really freaky, and it would be contrary to how God works. When God speaks of unity, he doesn't exclude diversity. Diversity is part of how God has made things, and and when there's unity in diversity, it's glorious and beautiful. I think even philosophically that beauty really is a, a mixture of diversity, but unity in that diversity. So God is not after unison, but he's after unity. And so when he says here to agree in the Lord together, he means to think the same things. Well, well what sort of things are, are he, does he want them to think about? What sort, of, what sort of things? Is it everything? No, it is the key things, the most important things, the things that have to do with Christ and the gospel. He wants them to agree on these key truths, and he wants them to agree on the key priorities and perspectives and procedures that flow from the gospel, that are centered on the gospel, the good news, this glorious good news of Christ that we want to remind ourselves of every day, this good news that God became a man, that he lived a perfect life. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life. He obeyed and fulfilled the scriptures. He laid down his life for others. He loved his Father supremely. He fulfilled the promises and the call of mankind throughout his life and then offered up that righteous, glorious life on the cross to pay for the sins of his people and to satisfy God's just call to punish and to deal with sin and his just call to require that mankind would obey him and be all mankind was called to be. He fulfilled all those things in his life and his death, offered up his glorious life so that all who would believe in him, so that all would recognize, all who recognize that they're sinners who are prone to conflict and live in a state of conflict with God, enmity toward God and one another to some degree and need a Savior to rescue them. All who would turn from that life of sin to Christ would find in him forgiveness and acceptance. And and if you are yet to put your faith in Christ, you can do that today. You just need to turn and trust and just express that with your mouth. Say, I believe, Lord, forgive me. To pray that simple prayer. Forgive me, Lord, I believe you. Lead me. I would love to pray that with you. It's not only for the one, though, that would need to make that prayer for the first time, but all believers, all of us need this wonderful gospel truth. We need it to transform us and remind us that we're forgiven, that we're redeemed, that we belong to the Lord, that he loves us and accepts us, and he's working in our lives to make us like Christ more and more. We need it because it's a paradigm, it's a picture, it's a pattern of living 
It's what we're called to live, how we're called to live. We're to be like Jesus. As we encounter him in his love and all that he's done for us and his life in us, we have power to joyfully choose to follow him and laying down our lives for others. This wonderful truth of the gospel of Christ transforms us and gives us the power to agree in the Lord, to think like the Lord, to think together the same thing, that it's not about us. It's about God. And we are called to love God and love others, and that is our greatest joy, not getting our own way. Life isn't about getting your own way or getting your own things and and living for yourself. That is not what life's about. That's death. And the gospel comes in and and it's truth and transforms that, turns us right side up from upside down. So now we are oriented towards God and his love for us, loving him back and loving others in his name and, and joyfully laying down our lives and not seeking our preferences. The gospel transforms us and gives us this power to think differently. And so that's what Paul is calling Yodia and Sinki to think about. He wants them to agree in the Lord, to think the same thing, to have a gospel-centered life that transforms how they deal with conflict and differences. Differences will arise. They will always arise as long as we're diverse. And differences don't have to be sinful. But they can be escalated to sin. And the gospel brings this unity, admits what would be differences and the conflict that follows, and changes everything. That's how we think together alike, to think the same thing. The gospel changes us and, and brings peace and unity where there was conflict. It makes me think of a, of a famous story, perhaps you know about it, in World War I. Um, World War I was the bloodiest war up to that point in the history of humankind. There were 70 million combatants in World War I. There were 15 million deaths, 20 million wounded, and it was a war where, where uh, weapons of mass destruction were first introduced. So mustard gas. People died from inhaling mustard gas, a horrible way to die. Trench warfare. The machine gun was introduced, yet they still were using trench warfare where there were these charges that come out of the trenches and just guys would get mown down by machine guns. It was a bloody, an awful war. Embittered enemies facing each other for years and stalemates and hatred and death. Yet amidst this awful conflict, an amazing, spontaneous truce erupted in Christmas 1914. I believe it's, uh, you can watch the movie Joyo, Joyo Noel that captures it. Not necessarily recommending the movie, but it has much good about this particular story. On Christmas Eve, German soldiers decorated their trenches with Christmas trees and candles and begins, began singing Christmas carols like Silent Night, but in German. And as they sang and they began to sing, the British side heard it. And this was on the front in Belgium. The British side heard it, and they joined in in singing the verses, but in English. And they continued to sing carols together. Then they started shouting Christmas greetings across no man's land between the trenches, one to another. Then some bold ones came out of the trenches. 
met halfway and greeted one another with Christmas greetings and actually exchanged gifts, brought food and tobacco and drinks and chocolate and souvenirs. And they talked together and they even played, they even played soccer together in no man's land. The artillery fell silent and they celebrated joint Christmas services there amidst this bloody battle. Quite a story. There's more to it I can't get into, but it was a wonderful truth, spontaneous truth, centered around Christmas. And that's a picture for us of what the gospel does in our lives. When the gospel has preeminence, when the gospel is what we think about first, when we see the priorities and patterns of the gospel in our lives, former enemies come together in friendship and in unity, and we lay down our conflicts, and we think the same together. How about you? Is the gospel affecting your life? I know many of you, and I know it is. But are there any conflicts in your life? Are there any relationships that are broken? Any those in the church, are, are there any situations that tempt you to take up arms? And do you, do you need to let the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, change how you approach that difference? There will be many opportunities for us to practice this truth. As a pastor, I'm aware of them. I just think of some of them where we are talking about as a church going to two services. The motivation in going to two services is simply this, that we want to reach people and disciple people more effectively. And there is a cultural phenomenon that when you reach 80% capacity, newcomers tend to not come back because they feel it's crowded and I don't want to come back. They don't need me here. I'll go to another church. We've seen that happen. We even had a bounce-back effect on the month of March. We, had, we were maxing out. We had overflow, and, and there were a number of new guests, and, and, I, and, and it's, our numbers went down after that. I think part of it was this phenomenon at work. So, so we just want to be faithful stewards of God's grace. We want to reach these folks and disciple them. We want to reach this area. We want to fill this place up two times, three times, and beyond by God's grace in the, in the name of the Lord and for the harvest. So we're looking at two services. We haven't finalized that. But regardless of where we go, whether it's one or two or whatever we do, there will be opportunity for us with our particular preferences to lay down our arms and to think together the same. All of us will be called to put aside our preferences in something like that, to serve the purpose God calls us to. There will be other things as well. Children's ministry. We're seeking with our children's ministry to, to reach our kids, to disciple our kids, and evangelize our kids. We don't see it as the, the end-all answer for our children, but we see it as an important component for the children of our members and a necessary and vital component for the evangelization of those who come to us who don't know Christ. And it has been our thinking that we need to strengthen this ministry and provide perhaps even a full service-length children's ministry at our second meeting. I'm totally flexible on what to do here. My goal is, I, I believe, evangelization and discipleship. And we're going to end up in different places on that particular method. I think we all agree on the goal. 
And there'll be opportunity in that as we decide and finalize those things to lay aside our preferences, to come out of the trench and say, you know what, I might not agree, but the gospel's changed my perspective. It changes how I deal with differences. It's reoriented me to live for God's glory and the good of others and to be patient with those other things. So I want to think the same thing like Yodia and Sinkti were called to. Whatever the particular issue or challenge we face, we are to be entreated by Paul's words to think the same thing together. Next, Paul goes on and teaches us to assist those in conflict. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Thankfully, we are not left alone in conflict to work it out on our own. We are given the gift of the body around us to come alongside and to help us. And this is what Paul is getting at here. He says in the verse, uh, it's translated in the ESV, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Also translated, yoke fellow. And some people think that this was actually a person named yoke fellow. Um, that's quite a name. Uh, and, and it may be, it very well may be that there was this guy called yoke fellow. Maybe one of you can name your kids yoke fellow. Um, there might have been a guy, but actually, if you look through the literature, there's no instance of a person called yoke fellow in the Greek literature. So, could be. I, I wouldn't rule it out. What I think Paul is getting at, actually, this is a word companion translated in the ESV, yoke fellow. What's a yoke fellow? It's someone, it's a fellow in a yoke with you. What's a yoke? A yoke is something that binds two people together. So yoke fellow is an expression, this is used in extra-biblical literature, to mean a companion, someone who labors with you, who walks side by side with you. And what I believe Paul is saying is other believer, other believers in the church, I ask you, brother, sister, yoke fellow too, Yodia and Sintki, help these women. Help them. They need help. And unity is so important, Church of Philippi, Church of King of Grace. Unity is so important. They need your help. You need to make this a priority in your life. If you see someone in conflict, you need to come alongside and help them. We need help in conflict. We need help to sort things out. And I don't believe that Yodias and Sinti's conflict was a matter of sin. It was not a matter, it was not a moral issue. The reason I think that is because whenever else that goes on, Paul usually addresses it. So say it was, you know, Yodia thought, you know what, we need to go right into that temple, that pagan temple, and be in their service and relate to people and reach out to them. And Sinki said, whoa, Yodia, that is over the line. We're not doing that. And, and they split camp. No, I don't think it's an issue like that because when that happens, that sort of thing happens, Paul goes right after the issue when it's a moral issue. I think it was a non-moral issue. I think it was a preference. I think it was because Yodia liked the burgundy chairs and Sinki liked the blue chairs. <laughs> or Yodia thought the budget for evangelism should be 7500 and Sinki thought, no, we don't need to spend that. Let's make it 5000 or whatever. And, and it was some issue like that. Maybe Yodia thought, you know, we need to be out doing door-to-door evangelism. That's what's going to work. Door-to-door, you've got to get in the houses. You've got to meet people. And Sinti said, no, that's just too invasive in this culture. Let's just do, you know, 
backyard Bible clubs and invite neighbors to that, and, and they split over that. It was some issue like that that was not necessarily of moral import. And we have seen this again and again. Most church conflicts are around non-moral issues. You guys know the story of Peg and No Peg Baptist Church, right? Two churches, there were deacon, one deacon thought there should be pegs to hang hats on the back. The other deacon said, no, there shouldn't be pegs. The church split over it. And there was Peg Baptist and No Peg Baptist Church in the same town. You see, this is how it happens. We are diverse. We have different ideas. We have different experiences, different opinions about how to best serve the mission. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Diversity is a good thing. Your ideas are a good thing. Unity does not mean abandoning your ideas. But what can happen is we have ideas about how to do it best, and then what happens is those ideas get wrapped up in the whole plan, and we tie doing puppet ministry for kids to the gospel. And we think if we're going to reach our neighborhood and our area, we have to do puppet ministry. If we want to be disciples faithful in the gospel, we have to do puppet ministry. And we tie puppet ministry to the gospel itself. And, and we, in our ambitions to see the gospel promoted and our ideas and preferences about how to do that, we elevate them together and they become precious to us. And we will not abandon them because in our mind they're that important. They're as important as the gospel. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had an idea you've elevated to that level? And you know what happens when you get in that place? You often cannot see reality. And if someone else disagrees with you because they want backyard Bible clubs instead and feeling the same way, you, will, you can... Start throwing punches over those things. You lose perspective, and thus the need for yoke fellows to come along and say, guys, wait, wait, whoa, 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 this is puppets and Bible clubs. Let's get some reality here. This is not, this is not the gospel. This is not the be-all, end-all. This is just minor things. We need that sort of help because we will lose our perspective. Now, certainly thinking the same does a lot to prevent that from happening, but sometimes we won't, and we need others to come alongside to, to help us. I, I think of an example of this in a, in a minor way. Um, I have examples from church, but this is a non-church example. Uh, years ago in my family, there was a conflict that was, had emerged. And if your family is like my family, you probably have had these things. The conflict was over the shaving cream can in the bathroom. And one person in my family wanted the shaving cream can to be on the shelf on the back of the toilet. The problem was is it's a steel can and it was causing a rust ring. And the other party absolutely did not want the shaving cream can on the back of the toilet because it was bringing a rust ring. And there was this open conflict in my family over the shaving cream can. Should it be on the back of the toilet or not? And, and went back and forth and back and forth. And in this particular instance, I wasn't the person in the conflict, though I can tell you stories about where I've, I'm just as ridiculous. But in this particular instance, I was outside the conflict. I was the yoke fellow in my family. And the other two couldn't think straight because it was all about shaving cream can or no shaving cream can. And I was able to come in with some objectivity and say, I got an idea. Why don't we take one of those plastic Tupperware lids, flip it upside down, and just put it, it's a small one, put it on the back of the toilet, and you can put your shaving cream can on top of that. No rust ring, shaving cream can is there. 
Everybody happy? And boom, it was solved. There was peace in my family. Well, that's how it's going to be for us at times. Someone else coming along and saying, whoa, 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 wait a second, guys. Let's, let's just think straight here. Let's help you. That's what's going on in, in Philippi. And that's what Paul wants others to come alongside and help them. Often we'll get stuck in the mud and we need a team of people. I remember one time getting stuck in the mud with our van uh, in our church parking lot years ago. And, and I had Peg driving and I was at the back trying to push the van out. I, had, I actually had white pants on too. And I was just all mud. We couldn't get the van going. It was a team of people finally came along, all these young men came in, we pushed that van out. There'll be times when we have to get involved as a team and help those stuck, and we're going to get muddy. But God's going to use us as we do, so we are to assist those in conflict. Finally, to, we are to avoid demonization. Demonization is a term when you characterize those who oppose you as demonic, as evil, when you polarize the parties. We're to avoid demonization. What Paul says is he speaks of Yodi and Sinki. It's interesting. He entreats them. He calls them out. Potentially an embarrassing thing to be called out by the Apostle Paul forever in Scripture. Yodi and Sinki. But then he goes on. What does he say about these women? He says he calls them out. He entreats them. He asks those to help him. Then he says this about them. He characterizes them as this. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul lavishes honor on these women. He does not allow the church to demonize these women and to say, oh, yeah, Yodi, I mean, she's a pain in the neck. She's always wanting her way. Or Sinki, she's just, I mean, she's difficult to work with. He avoids that. Instead, he honors these women. These are women who have served with him. They've labored side by side in the gospel. This is a term, actually, that Paul reserves for those that have been basically missionaries with him, who have laid their lives down even for the sake of the gospel. It's a very strong term. It's a high honor. It would be a high honor to be called a co-laborer with Paul. And he compares them to Clement and the rest of his fellow workers, another word, another high word. Now, Clement is, we don't know who he is. It's likely, though, he's a pastor. That's what I think. He's a pastor. He's some leader. He's a man who they would recognize as a church, a man worthy of honor. He puts Yodia and Sinki right alongside Clement. These women are worthy of honor, along with Clement and the other fellow workers. And then the highest honor he gives them, and it is the honor of every believer, whose names are in the book of life. These people are not only honored by me, they are honored by God himself. Their names are in that book in which God has inscribed his people, his chosen, his elect people, the people of his desire from eternity past. These are my people. God honors these people. Paul honors these women. And thus avoids demonizing either side. That's so important. Because in conflict, what will happen is we'll tend to demonize the other side. We like to polarize. We see it in politics, don't we? Now, I'm not advocating a particular political view from this pulpit. I won't. But as I observe the parties in our country, we see demonization going on. And it's a tendency we have. I, I once heard or read, read a, a British politician who commented that the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans was almost imperceptible to a European politician. The difference between the two parties was almost imperceptible when compared 
to any European political party. But for Americans, boy, that other side is the devil. And if we let them get their way, they're going to destroy us all. That tends to be where we go. Now, don't get me wrong. There are worthy topics to debate together. But there's this tendency to see the other side as the latest incarnation of the Antichrist. And it's very convenient, is it not? Because it kind of draws the line. They're the Antichrist. I'm the Savior. Any questions who you should agree with? It's very convenient. It serves our argument to demonize the other side and by implication to elevate ourselves. Paul implicitly calls the church in Philippi to not do that. By honoring these women, by speaking about who they are, and we would be wise ourselves to follow that practice, not only in conflict, but before there's ever conflict. And if the band could come up as we close. This reminds me of a practice we have as a church that I think has somewhat waned recently. I'm not sure all the reasons why. We call it sharing evidences of grace. Kind of a goofy, clumsy name. Whatever it's called. The point is this, that as we relate to one another, in the context, even one-on-one, in small groups, that we share with those other people how we see God at work in their lives. We honor them. We recognize how God is at work and how God has blessed them and used them. And we tell them that. We honor them. We do just what Paul did about Yodia and Sintki with our brothers and sisters. This regular practice for us as a church will preserve and protect us from disunity as we recognize one another in these things. It it might be some way, some gift they have, even more substantial ways you see godly character in their lives, things like love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, general self-control. It's good in this to be very concrete and specific, not just to say, well, you're a great guy. I like you. You're a good guy. You're godly. I mean, that's nice. It would be even better to do something like this. Jim, I noticed uh, this morning when we were driving to church, and that guy, that rude guy was tailgating you. And I know if I were driving, I would have wanted to like slow down to five miles per hour. But you didn't do that. You saw him in your mirror and I watched what you did. You actually, you, you said, boy, this guy must have something important to do. You pulled over, you let him go by, and then you prayed for him as he went by. That's godliness, Jim. And I just want to point that out. I believe that honors God. Well done. Those sort of things and making that a regular practice in our small groups, in our relationships, will do much to promote peace, to protect us from disunity, as we do just the opposite of demonizing, honoring one another. So here we have, in this wonderful passage, three important principles and mindsets to promote unity. We are to avoid demonization. We are to assist those in conflict. We are to agree in the Lord. What happens when we do that? There's unity. There's blessing. There's fruitfulness. And God is glorified. I know that's your heart. And as we prepare to close in worship, I just want to encourage you right now just to think about one relationship or issue where this is a challenge for you. Maybe there's a person in mind. Maybe there's an issue. Maybe there's a future issue in mind. Just one thing, one small step. And if you're taking notes, perhaps just write down at the bottom of your page that one issue. But commit that to the Lord and ask him to give you grace and perspective to agree in the Lord, 
to assist those or seek assistance in conflict to avoid demonization, that we might experience the blessing and fruit of unity. Let's take a minute to do that, and then we'll close in song.